In Washington, D.C. in 2020, I was walking with a Chinese friend in a gentrified neighborhood, and this is during the outbreak, and, and uh, this uh, white guy who was out walking his dog just started screaming at the woman, blocking our path on the sidewalk, and I had to push him out of the way. And, and the thing that really disturbed me is that I hadn't seen this friend in many years, but she wasn't surprised by the verbal assault. Is it different compared to Blacks, Latinos, Indians? Because the government and the mainstream media launched what is now a blatant anti-China propaganda campaign to demonize China. It was very, it was specific. I mean, it, it was so good, it was almost as if you would think it was planned by the PR firm that they retained. This current situation is very much connected to the current political situation, even though it's, of course, related to this long history of uh, racial discrimination against Asians. And yet, this particular geopolitical competition between the two countries are factored in to this current increase of uh, racial discrimination against Asians, and particularly Chinese Americans. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Hello and welcome to The Chat Lounge. I'm Tuyun. Our topic today is why hate crimes continue to rise in the United States. We'll be mainly focusing on hate crimes against the Asian community this time. So joining our chat are Joseph Mahoney, Professor of Politics, East China Normal University in Shanghai. Mario Cavolo, Senior Fellow with the Beijing-based Center for China and Globalization. And Dr. Zhao Hai, Research Fellow at the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Welcome to you all, gentlemen. First, I want to start with Dr. Zhao. When you studied and worked in the United States, did you yourself experience any racial discrimination? And how was the general situation of racism in the country back then? Yeah, honestly, uh, back then, I think the situation is pretty good. Um, my personal experience is that uh, Wh- uh, was discrimination that? is... It was uh, over five years ago now. So I stayed in the U.S. for over 10 years. And during uh, the early 10 years of the 21st century, I don't think uh, racial discrimination against Asians are a major problem in the U.S. Although you can feel it, it's palpable, but it's beneath, it's under the table, it's beneath the surface. And particularly in the universities, people are treated uh, with equal sort of uh, opportunity and a- attitude. So it's rarely experienced in my academic environment. However, I study at the University of Chicago. So in the southern part of Chicago, you can see it uh, almost daily, uh, sort of racial discrimination against black people, against uh, African Americans. So in comparison, I would say that uh, normally Asian people, particularly foreign students, are treated quite well. However, I think Things are getting much worse, as far as I know, uh, from the current student studying at the University of Chicago. Just last year, I think two students died because of the crimes against Asians. And I think the situation is getting much worse than the period that I stayed. Yeah, I think we've read about that news, um, the two Asian students. It's really tragic. And uh, Dr. Zhao, how have you know, hate crimes changed according to your observation in terms of uh, magnitude and the way they're committed, especially those, you know, against the Asian communities. As you said, you've stayed there uh, for quite some time. Yeah, I think, as I said, the reason that I experience differently from the uh, current situation is because uh, racial discrimination, particularly against Asians, recently increased uh, dramatically because that racial discrimination is very closely connected to politics. 
And that um, dramatic change happened when uh, President Trump took office and when the uh, U.S. policy towards China started to change. You can observe that even from afar. You can feel it when I talk to my friends and colleagues back in the U.S. that the situation is changing and the attitudes towards Asians are uh, becoming more skeptical and sometimes even with hate. And that situation worsened when the pandemic hits and when the rumors about how this virus is created or produced uh, in China and how uh, a lot of the you know buck-shifting things happen when the U.S. government is trying to blame everything on China when the Trump administration failed to deal with the COVID-19 situation in a proper way and so many Americans died. So because of the loss, they wanted to blame someone. And of course, Asian Americans, because their connection with China or with Asian in general, that they got blamed. And uh, many people, even working on the street, will be hurt by someone who were influenced by the news media or by the uh, current politics. So I think this current situation is very much connected to the current political situation, even though it's, of course, related to this long history of uh, racial discrimination against Asians. And yet this particular geopolitical competition between the two countries are factored in to this current increase of uh, racial discrimination against Asians and particularly Chinese Americans. Mm. And Professor Mahoney, I think you've got some uh, personal experience to share with us. Do you have the same observation of what's happening right now in the States? I would add a a bit more to it. I I would say that clearly this trend was well established. I think it actually starts a little bit before Trump with, you know, Clinton's pivot towards Asia and a few other things that were happening. Trump certainly deserves a lot of the lion's share for, for, you know, his dog whistle tactics. Uh, But we have to recall that, you know, he, he launched the trade war. He started demonizing China and China's political system long before COVID. And then that intersects with the COVID phenomenon. Actually, I got stuck in America for 2020. I've been in Shanghai for 12 years, but I got stuck in America for 2020 and 2021 due to the travel restrictions. Interestingly enough, I had just gone back to take care of some family matters uh, as a visiting scholar at a Confucius Institute. And then we get locked, uh, the the university gets uh, locked down and we all have to go online for the rest of the term. And then the Tennessee state legislature passed a law outlining Confucius Institutes you know, as communist beachheads in, in state universities. And so the, the Confucius Institute was forced to shut down. So it was, it was a very strange experience to observe. But, you know, I think just to, to reflect on, on a number of personal observations while I was there during 2020 and 2021, and we know that there were clearly this huge spike in, in violent crime towards uh, Asians. But I think we need to be aware that that overwhelmingly racism and discrimination in the United States is not criminalized, doesn't rise to the level of it being a chargeable offense. Um, and we can talk about laws and significant increases in new cases, but in fact, you know, these are only the tip of the iceberg. Uh, most instances of racism do not meet the juridical standard of hate. Uh, in fact, in the U.S., you are relatively free to hate whoever you want and can discriminate in many senses with relative impunity in ways that victimize real people, but nevertheless are not chargeable offenses. And a lot of racists, including Trump and others, are, are relatively sophisticated in their attacks. They use coding, they create hostile environments through generalizations that then provoke others into violence. And I've seen this with my own kids in the U.S. Again, we were there because of the COVID travel restrictions. And uh, my kids had to go to, to local schools. And I should note that my, my kids are half Chinese. 
and some kids at my son's school in Tennessee were bullying him for being half Chinese, making racist jokes at his expense. And he was reaching sort of a breaking point with it and, you know, told me about it. And I called the school principal uh, to complain. And he told me uh, that they had a zero tolerance policy with this kind of behavior at the, school, at the school. And my son needed to come to the office and file a formal complaint naming everyone who bullied him. And I said, well, you know, that's ridiculous. Uh, as one of the few people of Asian or uh, mixed Asian uh, descent in his school, he now has to name a dozen kids or more who were bullying him. How does that make him safer, right? So it will increase the hate against him. So, you know, a lot of this stuff is never even recorded because to speak up is to risk uh, increasing the danger. This problem isn't just among children. Uh, in Washington, D.C. in 2020, I was walking with a Chinese friend in a, in a gentrified neighborhood. And this is during the outbreak. And, and uh, this uh, white guy who was out walking his dog just started screaming at the woman, blocking our path on the sidewalk. And I had to push him out of the way. And, and the thing that really disturbed me is that I hadn't seen this friend in many years, but she wasn't surprised by the verbal assault. You know, it didn't rise to the level of physical violence, but it was still a form of violence uh, and intimidation. Now, with respect to what Dr. Zhao was saying about the universities, we have now had a lot of Chinese faculty being charged with crimes in the United States for having some sort of connection to China. We've had the outlawing Confucius Institutes. Uh, I have Chinese colleagues working in universities who have been driven into various degrees of silence. You know, previously they would promote Chinese culture, they would promote study abroad and, and so on, but now they are seeing a decline in support and risks of being labeled anti-American or communist agents. And this, you know, one university that I, that I was working with, the Confucius Institute, all of their resources were deleted and <laughs> given to the African-American group. So the University of Woods looking racist, but the Chinese still feel marginalized and insecure and keep their mouth shut. Uh, so th this is, I think, the climate that we're seeing. It's not just the clear-cut cases of violence, but a whole new culture of intimidation and uh, fear and insecurity that we're seeing among Asians and in particular people of, of the Chinese background in the U.S. Mm. I feel very sorry to hear about um, what's happened to your son, uh, Professor Mahoney. I didn't expect um, anti-Asian hate crimes to be so prevalent. Um, but as you've just mentioned, um, such crimes are not sufficiently criminalized in the states. But we've seen, you know, the Biden administration pass this uh, COVID-19 hate crime act last year in light of uh, what's happening after the COVID-19 outbreak in the states, which fuels the spikes in, in hate crimes in the past few years, especially targeting Asian communities. But that doesn't seem to be working in stopping the spread of hate in, in U.S. society. You know, from the shootings and um, three spas in Atlanta, Georgia, where six of the eight women killed were Asian, um, to the most recent three shootings at Asian-run businesses in Dallas, Texas. They are reminding people how dangerous it could be, you know, for Asians to be in the U.S. these days. So I'm wondering, what went wrong over the past year? Mario, what's your observation? Um, well, what went wrong is just a new and fresh manifestation of historical phenomenon that have been happening again and again over the generations. I, I'm going to take a moment to go back and, and, and let us all reminisce back to the early 1900s. Sure. And, and the reason I'm going to do that is because my family, 
then let's compare a bit. You know, my family were the Italians. I, you know, I, I'm an Italian American. So, so now I'm now really officially an Italian American Chinese. Really, I am. I'm, I'm in China 23 years. China's my home. And I and I say, wow, that's really unusual because I wasn't planning on that happening. But my Italian family left Italy uh, under difficult circumstances. We all know. Uh, you know, during the war period and. Uh, at the time, you know, Mussolini was running things in Italy, and my my country countryside family down in Basilicata region, you know, left Italy for America. I mean, it was America. It was the dream. It was they went under difficult circumstances. What was it? You know, I think sixty days on these steamships, tough journeys, and to to Ellis Island. And when they went, the Italians and the Irish back then were met with it as well. They were met with it. People don't are are not so keenly aware of this as, as I, I know of the history. The Italians and the Irish were horribly discriminated against as well, just like they were treated no better than the blacks and anybody else. And this was the reality. And of course, this also this gave rise in part to the uh, you know to the mafia protection racket. And now please go watch all three of the Godfather movies to understand all that because it is a very real part of American culture mm. um, to protect each other, to protect the family. So, so this kind of hate goes back a long way. We, we call it hate, but it's also just you know using people from a sense that there's a false delusional sense of moral superiority and we use the Chinese to build the railroad and then afterwards we kick them out. You know, we, I mean, this is horrifying. And that's of course going back even further uh, to the 1800s. And I take this background and now I go forward to you say to me, well, what went wrong? As if to say something specifically went wrong in the current environment, the current geopolitical environment that we're in. And yes, it was very specific. I won't hesitate to call it a nightmare. Joseph, you know, you shared the story to remind me because I don't live in America and I don't want to live there. And the story you shared is is the reason. But I clearly remember what went wrong. The roots of it were already happening. But I clearly remember when the proper the anti-China propaganda campaign was specifically implemented and executed over a 48-hour period. I'll never forget it because it happened on March 15th, 2020. Period. It was that clear and specific because earlier Donald Trump was speaking in you know respectful ways about Xi Jinping. What an amazing job they're doing over there! And you know Bruce Alward with the WHO, of course, had sung China's praises, rightfully so, for incredible response in Wuhan, and he got vilified for that. Well, then again, March fifteenth, all of a sudden, I called everybody I know. I said, "What's going on?" I noticed the messaging coming from. Tucker Carlson, Hannity, Judge Janine, President Trump, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, all at the same time, all of them saying, China is evil, China is dark, the China virus was fausted upon us, they're hiding everything, they're lying about everything, and that's what went wrong. If I was going to give you a specific experience, a specific moment, that moment, that decision that happened, which we now know was supported by the Republican strategy plan, if, you know, Republican, you want to win Donald Trump? You're going to win by vilifying China. That was their number one strategy. Uh, I've talked for a while, so I'll I'll stop there. So you're saying actually that's what、uh, Dr. Zhao just mentioned. It's been generally politicized the way they treat、uh, Asian Americans. <laughs>、oh, 
Yeah, I, I mean, it's not the same as blacks. You know, you, this is this quite, is it different compared to blacks, Latinos, Indians? Because the government and the mainstream media launched what is now a blatant anti-China propaganda campaign to demonize China. It was very, it was specific. I mean, it, it was so good, it was almost as if you would think it was planned by the PR firm that they retained to blame China and to do it in a way of choosing, you know, the five, the, the three or four main outrageous allegations. China's committing genocide against the Uyghurs. Yes, yes, that's what Hitler did against the Jews. Yes, China's doing that to the Uyghurs. See, China, they're that dark, dirty, and evil. And the Chinese are oppressing free speech and destroying Hong Kong. Never mind that the Hong Kong police, over the course of one year of violent protests, didn't kill any single person. Never mind that the violent protests were funded by the National Endowment for Democracy and they were setting local innocent Hong Kong citizens on fire and beating on them. No, never mind all of that. Just this is true. China is evil. They're doing these things. And and then telling you that anyone like me who denies it is, well, I'm denying it because I live in China and I'm paid by the government to say that. So this is a preposterous, pathetic set of circumstances. And it's being intentionally perpetrated by the U.S. State Department, along with various mainstream media and other institutions, with funding for the purposes of doing it. So that's very different than what's happening to uh, with this, this with respect to discrimination towards blacks and Latinos uh, mm. in mm. the United States. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. And Dr. Zhao, do you share the same opinion? Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's very critical to differentiate uh, between the traditional way of discriminating uh, other uh, people of color and discrimination of Asians, particularly Chinese Americans. Because in other cases uh, that Merrill mentioned is about domestic uh, uh, management. It's about domestic politics. And the U.S. is very good at playing their domestic politics. And Democrats are gathering this uh, racial discrimination and uh, you know using affirmative action to support their own political yeah. agenda. And of course, the yeah. uh, Republicans <laughs> are using the opposite. You know, it's identity politics. But now, about Asian, about particularly Chinese Americans, it's not just domestic. It's international. It's about great power politics, about you know, the rivalry between U.S. and China, of course, they're going to militarize or they're going to weaponize this whole idea yes, that yes. Uh, somehow uh, Chinese are, are alien or evil and they have yes. different culture, different religion, different, you know, work ethic even, that they're grabbing American jobs. They're hurting Americans, just like Trump said. And, and all this are coming up to this uh, climax, which is, you know, there's an evil government behind it and planning the downfall of American uh, lives or American uh, political system. So again, I think uh, there's a significant shift, as mentioned just now, that uh, since 2020, basically, uh, in the beginning, I think Trump still wants to make a deal. He's a businessman. But ultimately, uh, the uh, overall culture, this new Cold War culture, is taking over his government, just like um, you know, the former Secretary of State, Pompeo, made his speech at the um, Nixon oh. Library. Yeah, I think after that, you can, you can, you can see yeah. that there's the rampant attack the one, on, yeah. yeah on china and then you know this racial not just discrimination i think both the professor mahoney and Merrill made it very clear that this is a long historical problem that's racial discrimination but now we're talking about racial hate crimes mm. and that Dr. the recent yeah the recent political yeah. background is you know really pushing up this hate crimes against asians and things are now getting mm. worse and worse mm. by the day I, I think it's important to remember that, that before covid I, I agree that things really accelerate during covid 
And one of the interesting sort of moments in the false allegations of, of genocide in Xinjiang, this narrative correlates when the Trump administration decides to pull out of Afghanistan. And so it's like they start creating this narrative about Xinjiang to cover up the horror of what's happened in Afghanistan for 20 years. Yeah, as they're, it's all distraction. <laughs> yeah, so there, there, I mean, there are different tactics at work here to, to support different objectives. But I think it's important to recall that before COVID, Trump was playing a double game. He was saying some very, very nasty things about China's political system, about China. But then he was also still trying to strike a deal. I think we should use that. I think the die was already cast. And you asked the question, when did things go wrong? And the answer is, you know, well, they, they've been going wrong for the U.S. for a long time. Uh, we can draw a line back to the 1970s and, and the various things that they've done through time to try to shore up their position and extend their, their hegemony. But I think the moment that a lot of us point to is, is 2008, the global financial crisis, that's the same year that you have the incredible Olympics in, in Beijing, and you have this double perspective of, of this incredible global economic travesty that's, that's initiated, instigated by uh, this tremendous economic mismanagement and exploitation in the United States, which has a contagion effect across the world, at the same time that China is staging this incredible show that's overwhelming people. That's the first part. But then the second part is there was this longstanding perception in the West that was guided, was guiding policymaking, that was largely influenced by CIA ideology, you know, the so-called collapse thesis, the, the, the end of history idea, that China's political system was going to implode, that it was, it would be unable to stand the test of time, it would be unable to deliver what its people needed and desired. Instead, what happened to get to the point is that China kept rising, China kept getting stronger, but as Wang Huning, a member of the Standing Committee, as his book, uh, America Against America, had shown back 20, 30 years ago that, that America was stuck in time, that it, that it had these entrenched problems that they were unable to resolve because they had become systemic problems. And China, by contrast, had figured out this political model that was capable of adaptation and self-correction. It wasn't always smooth and pretty, but it happened generationally at the very least. Whereas in the U.S., if we can talk about the, the problem of racism, we, we see it as a cyclical problem that keeps going around and around in circles. The same with the problem with guns, the same with the problem of poverty, the same with the, all these issues, drugs, uh, exploitation by major firms, pharmaceuticals, all these problems have been continuing healthcare for several generations now and getting worse and worse. So the prediction was that China would collapse. And you know, with, with the, the political difficulties that China was struggling, before the current generation took power in China, the hope in the West was that, that this would happen. But when the current uh, generation consolidated power, they launched the anti-corruption campaign, they put China back on the right path, while at the same time, the United States was becoming more polarized, more race issues, presidents running on these issues, identity politics. That's the moment where things really go off track. It's this deep existential fear that the US was now vulnerable and lost and was going to be displaced by a power that they perceived as being very different from uh, U.S. power and privilege. Right. I tend to agree with uh, Professor Mahoney. Professor Mahoney said uh, this all started before Clinton, and I would propose it probably started earlier. Yeah. If you remember what's happened to the Japanese during the 1980s, early 1990s, when Japan <laughs> ascended to you know another world economic power. Is it 
economically driven. Right, uh, I think Dr. There's definitely an economic. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely an economic dimension to this because uh, when I was in the U.S., there's a very interesting and significant phenomenon, which is throughout the Midwest, there are people in manufacturing losing their jobs. And uh, according to the uh, very authoritative uh, study, actually 60% of the manufacturing jobs lost are to automation. However, even though those 40% loss uh, to East Asian, mostly to China, is galvanizing uh, those people, particularly white uh, high school educated people, their hate or their um, dissatisfaction against China. So I think when Trump rises, it's very important to understand the background and his supporters who are actually, because of their economic pain, are accumulating this very racially discriminating sense against Asian people and particularly Chinese people. So uh, I think economic factor is definitely one of those factors in recent developments. However, I think there's yeah. another thing I want to emphasize uh, because listening to um, the professor, to other speakers, I think one thing is very important to understand because the American ruling class is using this technique of divide and conquer for a very long time. Uh, and right now they're using the same thing again and again. Just now we mentioned Xinjiang, mentioned Afghanistan. They know very well uh, the idea of clash of civilization. And they're trying to prevent any sort of coalition built between Chinese and Muslim people. So they're using this uh, Xinjiang case to drive a wedge between the Chinese civilization and the uh, Muslim uh, Islamic civilization and trying to divide China because China's developing Belt and Road Initiative. And this is very bad for America. They can't develop the comparable project to help build infrastructures throughout third world countries. So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that uh, while I was in the U.S., there's also another very acute problem between African-Americans and Asian-Americans. Why? Because of the affirmative action. And there are a lot of proposals to raise, uh, to help education in the black community, to help them have having a higher income and better jobs. However, Asians somehow believe that this will infringe capability to send their children to good schools. Why? Because they think all the tests should be uh, merit-based and uh, because others are proposing to uh, give extra credit to Latin, you know, Latinos or African-Americans. But all these are not shaking one bit of you know, white uh, students and their position in schools. So I think this is sort of intentionally or unintentionally promoting friction uh, between the, the black community and Asian community. And the other thing is the cultural factor, because in the United States, there's a widespread idea that Asians are somehow weak, uh, are not standing up for themselves. So in Chicago, we're also having the problem very often, you know, uh, Asian Americans got robbed on the street, even during daylight. So this is very rampant. However, most of the crime committed against Asians are uh, African-Americans. So again, racial discrimination have many faces. It's not just white against the Chinese Americans or Asian Americans. There are all kinds of factors or all kinds of dimensions we need to consider. Dr. Zhao, are you saying that uh, those politicians they actually know what they were doing will divide the society? <laughs> sure, yeah, of course, of course. They, they introduce they're, they're building a racial hierarchy in society. Then those acts or bills they're adopting actually, it's just for pretentious um, purposes or. I can give you I can give you a very specific example. Sure. I was a professor in in Michigan, and um, before I was bought out and blacklisted um, for also being a political activist. But one of the things, one of my biggest things that irritated and made the university 
sent me on the way was that I was living in a, and this was in Western Michigan, which is a, a place that has lost a lot of manufacturing jobs and that blames not only China, but also uh, migrant labor, uh, specifically Latinos. So the two major industries of that area were auto parts, a lot of which have been lost to China, and orchards, which primarily apple orchards. And uh, all the labor there is is migrant Latino labor. And where I lived, the, the local, uh, it's a Republican area, and the local state legislator for that district was the chairman of the the state appropriations committee controls you know how money gets gets allocated for the state budget and he sent this anonymous flyer to all the local residents and there were these dog whistle messages and and he says one of the things that i promise you is that while i'm in power no illegal migrant will ever get access to a state id meaning i won't give them any sort of foothold to uh, having a legal job or position so there's a state database that shows where state politicians or elected leaders get their their campaign donations. And it turns out most of his campaign donations came from the orchards. And the orchards are the ones that are using all of the migrant labor. And they want the migrant labor to stay marginalized, to stay illegal, because they don't have to pay taxes or benefits. And there was this this uh, orchard near our campus, and there was a fire in the, in the barracks. And we don't know how many of them were killed because they ran. They, they picked up the bodies and ran before the emergency services came so they wouldn't be arrested and, and sent back to wherever they came from. So I get this message, uh, and I know that he is basically being paid by these orchards, these massive you know, agricultural companies that are exploiting migrant labor. And then he's turning around and using this as a dog whistle tactic to... Uh, mobilize angry white voters to support him, right? It's it's not just that we're discriminating, but also exploiting. And, and you know, this is a whole cycle or ecosystem of exploitation and hate uh, that's connected to business and politics and, and culture. Uh, and so, you know, I not to, to focus on my part of the story, but I was disgusted by it. And I, I sent, um, I filled out, there was like, you know, this little thing on the back of the anonymous flyer. And I, I said, uh, stop being an asshole and learn how to love people and sent it back to him. And then someone in his office pulled the, the barcode, uh, did research on who I was, discovered that I worked in a state university, and then sent a letter to my dean talking about how irresponsible it was to employ this kind of vulgar person in a state institution, uh, someone who was going to take uh, make these kind of uh, comments to someone who controlled the state budget, uh, including the budget of the university. And uh, that was one of a number of things that ended up leading me out of the United States and into China, uh, strangely enough. But I'm saying this is one concrete example of how this hate moves through in, in very specific ways and very deliberately used by political leaders to, to serve not only their narrow political interests, but those of the, of the businesses uh, who, who uh, supported their uh, campaigns in the first place. And is that the major reason leading to, you know, this anti-Asian hate crimes in, in the whole country more than quadrupling last year compared to the year before? Is There's so many things that are happening all at the same time. I mean, this again, Indeed. as I mentioned it, um, it's been covered, I, I think, between the three of us, it's been covered really well. You know, Professor Mahoney pointed out that so many of these things were already happening and egregiously so. And then I brought up and noticed how they they ramped it up, right? They just ramped it up. They took it to another level. So these things are happening specifically, intentionally, and egregiously. It's it's like a giant malign psyops brainwashing campaign. And it's 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 happening 
with specific intent and purpose, which makes it quite horrifying. Now, if you ask why it's happening, well, I'm not so sure anymore I have the answers. Um, I think that Professor Mahoney alluded to it. Um, all this goes back, I always say 20 years, but yeah, even back to the 70s. But in the last 20 years in particular, you could see that the steady downfall of the United States, the adoption of this neoliberal anything goes agenda has deteriorated society and, you know, strong roots in marriage and family and all kinds of things that have come along. While at the same time, they have gradually and steadily turned what was a fairly decent neoliberal democracy into, they've evolved it steadily into a plutocracy. So, and they're trying to hide all that. I, I think that you say, I mean, what's the agenda? Why? Because they're doing all of this as a distraction, as a giant psyops campaign to distract from their own agenda, which is a malign agenda that's not for people at all. It's just for themselves. They're doing it for the wealthy. They're doing it to maintain power and control. That's even why they're engaged in this war over in Europe now, yeah, in Ukraine I, and Russia. I understand. That's... Um, can yeah. I provide a, sure. an interesting point? Because I did some research before from a purely academic perspective and from economic and demographic perspective. It's interesting. If you look at uh, the uh, long-term U.S. demography, there's an interesting number, which is that every year, if immigrants' number exceed 13 to 15 percent of the overall population increase, you will always have an increase, and sharp increase, of uh, racial discrimination and discrimination, wow. particularly against Im immigrants. Yeah, that's a very, very interesting thing because you would experience a time of you know high globalization, hyper globalization. You will have a capital welcoming immigrants to fill in to help and increase the labor supply and and increase economic activity, and then. Of course, this all will come down to a point where the, the economy collapse, and then you know immigrants will become excessive labor, and then the native people will have somebody to blame, and the politicians will have increased pressure on them to let out the pressure and blame some somebody. Of course, immigrants, you know, foreigners, aliens, they will always become the target. So I think there's a circle in the United States going round and yes. round, and you, you you can observe that. It's just a matter of who. Who, and this right. time, is Asian-American, is Chinese-American. The Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. I understand, uh, like a, a lot of people were saying, that it's just something embedded in U.S. society, or it's like a chronic disease. But my question is, why Asians this time? And Dr. Zhao just gave some explanation, but I mean, I'm done advocating like victim of blaming, but some people suggest the, the pathetic uh, certainly have something to be despised. You know, everything happens for a reason. It was always there. It's Yin. always there. Yeah, Chu right. Yin. Mm. Yin. It was always there. Let me go back. Let me go back to the year that I unexpectedly, China became part of my life because before 1999, the idea of visiting China or going to China or, you know, studying in China or anything China was not in my mind at all. I was just living my life. And um, as a young boy, we grew up in Yonkers, New York. And, and on the weekends, we used to go downtown to Manhattan. And we used to either go to Little Italy or Chinatown. And that was a romantic memory for me, that that's what we used to do with my mom and dad. My, my dad would take us all down there for the weekends. And, and that's what we would do. And it was wonderful. But that was it. I, I, I didn't have any interest in, in China. 
1999, when I was invited unexpectedly, I was living in LA and, and then I made some Vietnamese and some Chinese friends. And next thing I know, a guy from Chongqing invited me to China. I was like, China? Okay, why not? Sure. And he said to me on the plane on the way here, what do you think about China? And I says, I don't know anything about China. I just know that it's some evil, dark place behind a, a wall. And that, that was it. I mean, that, and that's what, and, and I, by the way, I don't mean that personally. I didn't personally think anything bad, but that was the perception of China in the United States. Promoted by media, person. mainstream it, media. Promoted by the whole society. Mm. This, this was 1999 and I got on the plane and he looked at me and he said, whatever you think, just let it all go because none of it's true. And sure enough, I arrived in Chengdu and Chongqing and it was absolutely right. I could, I knew within 72 hours of arriving and walking around the cities that everything I was told was not true. And that was back in, that, that was 1999, that was 23 years ago. So Tuyin, this is not new. This is the false, to a degree, white, Caucasian, you know, it's the European, because it's the Europeans who went to America, false sense of entitled moral superiority to the rest of the world you know they're chinese they're they're below us period so well i'd like to that's it. i'd like to i'd yeah. like to provide two perspectives here the one is is you know clearly the history of anti china hate and then the second is the more general hate towards asians in particular and these two things often intersect and overlap but they are distinct phenomena and i think one of the things here to go back to, not, not to go back to ancient history, but if you go back to you know what, what some scholars call the Great Encounter, where you start having these Europeans who are coming to China during the Yuan Dynasty, during the Ming Dynasty, and they are absolutely horrified by how advanced the Chinese are. Uh, it terrifies them, and, and in part, it inspires them to, to develop. Uh, the Chinese were, were not globally expanding the way Europeans would. But uh, what's interesting, uh, Dio Mungolo talks about this in his book, The Great Encounter, that the Chinese were so advanced culturally, artistically, scientifically during the Yuan Dynasty and the Ming Dynasty that the Europeans classified them as white people because they couldn't bear the possibility that they might be a separate race, which would then imply that the Europeans themselves were an inferior race. Now, this changes, wow. of course, in the 1800s, when um, uh, China is, of course, struggling with uh, the retrograde conservatism of the Qing dynasty, while the West has exploded forward with uh, the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution. And then the Chinese are reclassified as a subordinate, inferior race, as a yellow race. And that's when we start seeing, you know, not only this intersecting with the broader phenomenon of Orientalism, which is, you know, described, of course, famously by Edward Said. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, it, and it's not just... Uh, we have things like the Chinese Exclusion Acts in the United States, but we have uh, Kaiser Wilhelm talking about the Yellow Peril. Uh, we have uh, the fear of Asia. That whole period of, of dominating China, the century of humiliation, you go back and you look at these narratives in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and you see the story over and over again, kick China while she's down. She's a danger. Mm. When and that's what's been happening, is that China found a way to overcome that and stand up, and now you know, the U.S. is afraid again, or the West is afraid again, uh, and, and finding all these ways to demonize and, and to fearmonger. But, uh, you know, we, we know the history of the Chinese Exclusion Acts. We know the history of the Magnuson Act. We know that, you know, we have this in incredible discrimination against Chinese. To say that it's moderated or a bit by the Magnuson Act is to be a little too kind to it. But that's when we also begin to have 
the anti-Japanese, right? Uh, uh, clearly, because the U.S. If you go back to the to the history, the first foreign naval base in Asia is in Qingdao, the Germans. Um, the second is the Americans in the Philippines, and that's what really sends Japan off the rails. Okay, that's what sends uh, Japan into. I'm not saying the Japanese were, were wonderful people before that. I'm not saying they're awful people now. But I'm saying Japan into this competitive imperial moment, uh, in part because the United States is crashing into the Philippines, uh, and of course Japan took uh, the Qingdao concession from Germany with the Treaty of Versailles, which of course sparks the May Fourth Movement and and this renewed effort for China to to try to solve its political problems to stand up, becomes the cradle of the party and all these things. But you know we we move from this specifically anti-China racism to the anti-Japanese racism uh, in America with the concentration camps for Japanese Americans. And then that uh, moves forward with the American war in Korea, right? Which is also a, Korea, a war against China. And then right as that's wrapping up in the early 1950s, the United States is going into Vietnam, Laos and Cambodia, right? And so after that, in the 1970s, I don't know that anyone remembers this, but there was a lot of so-called anti-Chinese sentiment in the United States in the 1970s. But that's because in, in the 1970s, the U.S. recognized Taiwan as legal China. And at that time, there were these uh, pro-dumping policies where the United States was supporting Taiwan economically against the mainland and allowing Taiwan to dump its products in the United States. And that was making a lot of American uh, workers unhappy because they were struggling with inflation, with uh, the crisis associated with the oil shocks and um, uh, all of those issues. So there was a lot of anti-China stuff, but it was anti-ROC, anti-Taiwan stuff at that time. And then in the early 1980s, we go back to anti-Japan because Japan was a rising economic power. And we had people being attacked. We had Chinese being killed. There's a famous example of Chinese being killed because they were mistaken for Japanese. It was mentioned earlier about the problem of uh, between African-Americans and Asians. And, and, you know, we saw this really reaching a fever pitch during um, the riots in uh, L.A. Uh, with the Rodney King verdicts. Uh, and this was because there had been these long tensions of, of Asian businesses coming into African-American communities because white capital didn't want to go in there. But Asians were willing to go in and invest in this. And so they had created uh, small convenience stores and nail shops and other, and there had been tensions in those communities between yeah. the Asians who were thriving, right? But I'm saying that there's been generationally since the early 1800s, there's been this one generation after the other, uh, this continuation of some sort of anti-Asian, but often circling back to anti-China yeah. uh, violence. Uh, I understand yeah. what you mentioned. Uh, that's uh, history. Um, Chinese being or Asians being weak, um, but. Uh, Time is different now, and uh, as Dr. Zhao just mentioned, a lot of crimes committed or anti-Asian crimes were committed by African Americans. But today, Asians are, are not like what they used to be. They've got very high social status. They're in advanced technology uh, sector, working as bankers or industry leaders, if you will. But why is but in a way, that makes them that makes that's them why we need to make you hate them. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Yeah, is it because what, people you know? just a lot of people just say that's because Asians they're not outspoken enough. They lack the spirit of resistance, like what African Americans uh, do. Does that make sense? I think that was historically the case, and and to some extent, generationally, it's still the case in some of the older generations. In some regions, in some areas, you you do find some activism and resistance among younger Asians. I think 
though the, the point that I was trying to say is that a lot of the, you see some white elites, cultural elites and economic elites who stoke hatred and anger among white working class people, right? And, and I was describing yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. And it's directed, one of the things that's interesting is look at uh, Trump belongs to an old economy. I mean, his, his business model, his, his industry, it's all the old economy. You can talk about Asians having a very prominent role in the new economy in high tech, but that's not the economy that Trump really likes. That's not the economy of the old manufacturing base. That's not the economy that's been dispossessed. Okay, That's not the economy where you have a lot of white people who are angry, a lot of uneducated white people who spent their, a lot of their lives on factory lines, who uh, lost their jobs, who got hooked on opioids because they don't have adequate access to healthcare. They're angry. They're hurting. And we can point to China as a, as, as a cause, or we can point to uh, these professionals in various industries, which, by the way, just the only group that outnumbers uh, East Asians or Chinese in the United States in, uh, among Asians are, are South Asians or Indians. And they're also very heavy in, in tech and pharmacy and, and, and these sorts of things. Uh, and all of these industries have been vilified by people who feel like they have been lost or left behind. And so they, you, you do find sort of this traditional power. Well, I, I think there's, we have to, sorry, I, I think we have to differentiate generations of immigrants to the United States. Mm. Because uh, if you talk about 19, late 19th century, uh, there's coolies moving towards the United States, helping to build railways. And they're opening up shops for laundry and, and cooking restaurants. Uh, so those are like low income laborers. And uh, they're quite discriminated uh, within the U.S. society. But then after uh, World War II, there's a new wave of immigration to the United States, and those are more like highly educated people. Uh, but then, of course, after China's uh, opening up reform in the 1980s, there's another wave of fresh immigrants from China, mainland, to the United States, and those are high-income people, highly educated, and more willing to be integrated into American society. So that's why in the beginning I said, you know, uh, when I was in the United States, I don't feel like this high-income tech-savvy sort of educated class of Chinese are openly discriminated in the U.S. society. And that's why leading to today's topic, which is that today this very much poisoned political atmosphere contributed to the increased discrimination against uh, even these class of people. So I think th there's very specific environment contributed to today's acute problem, of course, leaving the uh, background of longer term historical discrimination against all Asians to an open question. The other thing is that today, if you look at the uh, living quarters of Asians, a uh, hundred years ago, they most lived in the so-called Chinatown, right? Today, I still go to Chinatown and have my meals. However, today, this is very different because, like I said, different generation of immigrants, they don't live in Chinatown. They li also live in the uh, suburb, living in the white communities and mixed with other race and other, you know, uh, historical racial communities. So they're much less likely being uh, openly discriminated. However, people still living in the city, and particularly those low-income people are uh, traveling on public transportation, for instance, are having a higher possibility of being hit by uh, racial hate crimes. So those violence we're talking about in New York, in Chicago, in other big cities, those are actually not... Uh, sort of high-income people who are driving their own cars going to offices are likely to be attacked. But those are like normal people, working-class people, that are more likely to be attacked by other like white people who are brainwashed or black people who are brainwashed by this news media circles again and again.
uh, against China and being the victim of this current atmosphere. Mm. And uh, as you just said, Dr. Zhao, it's if it's because of a toxic political vibe in the country, do you expect such a trend, anti-Asian hate crime, to continue to grow in the years to come, or maybe? Well, I, I, at this point, unfortunately, yes, because if you consider the the number, uh, there's only three to five percent of American population are are Asian American, and they have their voice and their political voice. It's relatively small, and it's very hard to leverage. Their political influence to change the overall political atmosphere and culture. However, right now the positive sign is that a, a lot more uh, Asian Americans are now waking up and organized and politically active. So today you can discover more legislators, more congressmen, and you know more politicians in America. And right now there are more、uh, running for offices. So those are positive signs. But I think the headwind is much stronger than the increased organization and self-awareness to protect themselves and to counter this racial discrimination. So I think in the current atmosphere, when U.S.-China relations is still very much problematic, this kind of racial discrimination could last a long time and could cause more harm in American society. So it's very critical. For those people to protect themselves, and recently you heard that actually Asian Americans are buying more guns than even you know white or or African Americans. So there's increased possibility of being the victim of hate crime, and there's more and more need for you know domestic education and also overall global help to mitigate this problem and try to solve it from the their root. And、uh, Professor Maholny, do you have any concern that? Everyone would vote with their feet, right? If this trend continues, do you have any concern of something like a exodus of、uh, of Asians out of、uh, the United States, like what you and、uh, Mario did? Outflow of、uh, talent, probably. What impact would that have on the U.S. society? Well, let me let me bridge to your question from from the previous answer. You know, we're we're coming up on a midterm election and.、Uh, Uh, midterm years tend to be hyperpolitical and in ways that focus on local elections. So the money and competition intensifies at the local level. And when we start talking about local politics, this is where race and gerrymandering, dog whistle tactics, the race card is played, and、uh, we see、uh, elections decided much more closely by race factors. We know that right now Biden is, is or the Democrats are going to probably lose the the House in the midterms.、Uh, Republicans are surging. The economy is still souring. I, I think you know what we're really going to see is Democrats and Republicans, as as they have been since Trump,、uh, competing to see who can be the most anti-China. And I think this has spillover effects for Chinese and and Asians、um, uh, generally. And so we're going to continue to see、uh, this sort of、uh, violence, despite people you know talking certain ways, despite criminalization. We're going to see uh,、um, uh, continued violence, and we just saw the violence in, in Buffalo. It wasn't directed at Asians, but it was white supremacists. And white supremacists doesn't really care if you're you're black or Asian or anything. It's a, a deeper, more、uh, all-encompassing illness. But as to your question, you know whether we're going to see something like、uh, an exodus, I don't think a, a major exodus is likely.、Uh, I think we'll we'll see, of course, many who choose to leave the U.S. for better opportunities elsewhere.、Uh, this has already been a trend.、Um, you know, we started seeing、uh, what was it in, in Chinese, the highway, the sea turtles, the people who went to the U.S. and were thinking about, you know, who got educated and who thought they would live and work in the U.S. 
but discovered that, you know, given the, the growth of China's economy and the reforms, that they had better opportunities and, and perhaps a safer and, and better standard of living here in China. Uh, that trend was already at work for a lot of people. Of course, it, it won't be the case for everyone. I do think that we'll, instead of seeing an exodus, as was mentioned by, by Dr. Chow, uh, we are going to see more uh, efforts directed towards activism, uh, maybe more legislation and legal support. But uh, I think what we'll also see is what we see happening in the U.S. in, in a broader context, which is people simply moving to parts of the country where they feel more secure so uh, we might find, we find this with, with different minority groups. They tend to, to group in one area, in one part of the city, not Chinatowns per se, but maybe they feel safer in San Francisco or L.A. or certain parts of L.A. or New York or certain parts of New York, and they will start building stronger communities in those areas. So it, it may be more a concentration of communities where they can leverage up uh, strength and protection in local areas, but not abandon the country altogether. We say a lot of negative things about the United States, and I think it's important for us to remember that there are very few countries like the U.S. that are as diverse as the U.S., and I do think we ought to encourage the U.S. to find solutions to these problems. We, we know that, that there's a deep racial, racist uh, aspect to American history, to American conquest, to the genocide of Native Americans, African slavery, to what they did to Chinese workers, and what they've done through imperialism. But at the same time, the U.S. is one of the most diverse places, and this is what makes it uh, such a difficult place today with, with respect to racism and the, the U.S. is declining uh, geostrategic position. So optimistically, proactively, positively, if we were to tell the U.S. to do something, stop the demonization, stop the dog whistle politics, get gun control into place, improve your education system, teach real history better, stop the double standards, continue to build strong anti-hate laws and enforcement improve the policing and incarcerating of hate groups, and by all means, elect more Asians into government, uh, encourage more people to take responsibility and to become the face of themselves and, and uh, a multicultural society. That's what we should all really hope for. Let's hope for that, that, that they actually improve uh, because that would benefit all of us, not just Asians in America, but the whole world. Indeed, it's for mm. the good of the United States itself and a society divided due to discrimination against um, ethnic groups is the last thing desirable for a country to prosper in. That's a lesson we've learned in forming the Chinese nation throughout its long history. And that's also why, you know, the Chinese government has introduced a slew of preferential policies for ethnic minority groups since the founding of the People's Republic, including in, you know, in the higher education and childbirth. But that's a, a topic for another episode, maybe. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Dr. Zhao Hai of the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Professor Joseph Mahoney of East China Normal University in Shanghai, and Mario Cavolo, Senior Fellow with the Beijing-based Center for China and Globalization, for your insightful explanation of the issue. You can leave a review for us either on the topic or on the show. Please subscribe to The Chat Lounge for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Tuyin. Thank you for listening. More to come here at Chat Lounge next week. Mm-hmm.